I am the greatest. I said that before I even knew I was. I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast. I can't possibly be beat. And you know, the truth is, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. I am the greatest. I am the greatest thing that ever lived. I am the king of the world. And to put it plainly, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. I'm, I'm not great. I'm double great. Not the greatest. I'm double greatest. Not only do I knock them out, I pick the round. Are you getting how great I am? What you're getting is that that's not really me saying that because it's a hard pill to swallow, but I'm not that great. But Muhammad Ali considered himself that great, and those were all of his quotes about his greatness. He thought he was great, and for a time he was the greatest, wasn't he? But great has a lot of meaning. That's great means that's very good. Oh, great means that's really bad. And then there's that great wall in China, which it's just big. It's big and great, they say. But in Muhammad Ali's eyes, great and greatest meant something else. It meant singularly excellent. It meant the best. It meant the only one, the recognized leader, the champion. Not just in boxing, everywhere in life. We have a term today, it's probably not today, I just recently heard it, describing Tom Brady. I don't know why it took this long for me to hear the term. Goat. No, it's not a temple sacrifice. G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. The goat. Okay? Describing athletes or, or whoever else. And listen, on some level, there is something great about being great and wanting to be great. I do want to be great. I hope you want to be great. I mean, we should want to be great. How many areas could we be great in? The greatest disciple of Yeshua. John said he was that, but why can't I be that? The greatest father, the greatest wife, the greatest son, the greatest uncle, the greatest whatever. I mean, these are goals that are good. The ideal, the top of the world. And that to me sounds great. I mean, but the creation story, and that is where we begin the Bible this week. Boreshit bara Elohim. The creation story has something to tell us about greatness. And it's in, it's in a Midrashic style. Midrash. You know Midrash, but if you don't, this is what Midrash is. It is a, this is one definition. The Jewish method of commentary, which takes the biblical text, and sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, through often overlooked additions or subtractions, an extra vav here, or a missing mem here, or some repetition or placement of particular Hebrew words, all kinds of different things. The Midrash takes those, again, either literally or figuratively, and points us toward interpretations that we can use in our lives. That's what Midrash does. It's like a sermon, sort of, but much cooler. And we find a great Midrash 
about Genesis 1 and the fourth day. And here's what happened on the fourth day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And they shall serve as signs and for seasons and for days and years. And they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day. The lesser light to govern the night. Now, there is a difficulty right there. Can you pick up on it? What is it? I heard it. How many greatest can there be? He made two great lights, and there's a difficulty. The greater for day, the lesser for night. Are they both great or not? Does that mean does that mean bigger? The greater, the bigger, the sun? We could do that. That would be easy and the message would be over and it wouldn't be worth anything. So no, we're not going to say it that. And the sages said something different anyway. They tell a different story. Here's Rashi's summary of what this means. The Talmud actually treats it this way. They were created equal. Of course, what are the two great luminaries? The sun and the moon. And the Talmud says they were created equal. They were equally great, right? But the moon was made smaller because it brought charges to God and said, it is impossible for two kings to use the same crown. Now, the whole time I'm talking today, I want you to remember what I said about Midrash and how we define Midrash. Rashi explains that this drash is based on the discrepancy of the two great luminaries, which intimates that the moon was great and the lesser luminary, which intimates that the moon was then smaller. To reconcile, the rabbis asserted that the moon was equal, but because of its complaining about not being the greatest, was forced to wield that power, yield that power. Can two kings wear the same crown, the moon said, to which God said, go and diminish yourself. The moon got spanked. <laughs> and here's the moon point. Thank you, David, I expected it. The moon point, like, main, main, here's the moon, main, okay, forget it. Jeez, I thought that would work. Here's the main point. The moon in our Midrash defined greatness by whose definition? Muhammad Ali's. Singularly great. The only, the best. There can't not be two of us. Only one can be great. To which Hashem responds to the moon in our Midrash. I created you with an equivalent amount of greatness in your specific role. But you have missed the point entirely, moon. Now go and make yourself less. Go and diminish yourself. And the moon accepts the verdict, actually, in the end of the Midrash. Accepts the verdict, becomes the apparent lesser. This voluntary act of self-diminishing to not be called the greatest, the greater. Now, is that bad? Well, Hashem didn't actually think so. 
Hashem represented, Hashem accepted and appreciated the moon's humility. And how did Hashem respond? He rewards the moon's humble acceptance role of this lesser role. Because it was diminished, he increased its hosts to appease it. And out with the moon come the stars, the entourage. And when the moon sets, they set too. And here's the lesson. We all desire to be great. We all have ambitions. But in this pursuit of greatness, of being the best, of being singularly the top of the top, of dominating, of looming over, of ruling, I'm the greatest of all time. Of that, there is a consequence. It is solitude, loneliness, and separation sometimes. Consider now with me the greatness of the sun. It's pretty doggone great, isn't it? You could almost say we couldn't live without it. That's how great it is. It's big, it's hot, it's powerful. Sounds like Muhammad Ali. It nourishes our planet, provides food. Well, not Muhammad Ali now. Then, provides food, energy, gravity, gravity. And it is why through the ages cultures have worshipped the sun. Because it's the greatest, it's greater, it's big. They called it the sun god. But the sun will kill you. Literally, from there to here, whether it's immediately, if you want to sleep in the sun for 48 hours, you'll die probably. Or if you sit out there for 48 years with no sun protection, it will kill you too. The sun is something we have to protect ourselves from. We can't look at it. The sun exists in complete solitude. We cannot approach the sun. It is indeed the most powerful luminary, greatest in all the heavens, and completely and totally alone. Now that sounds weird, but listen. How about our lesser luminary? The once great, but now diminished moon. Consider the moon just for a moment. Is it diminished when compared to the sun? Yes. Is it important? Does it serve a purpose? Is the moon absolutely a part of the life that we live and breathe? Of course. And the Talmud speaks of these things directly when it says, When the moon hits the sky. <laughs> That's not the Talmud. But... The moon is the brightest light in the night sky, surrounded by the stars, the constellations. Now listen, sunsets are beautiful. They are majestic, and they last about that long. But a full moon in the sky, moving across the sky with the constellations and the planets and everything that God has made that the moon gets to share in because of its diminished greatness, we marvel at that beauty. We marvel at the waxing and the waning of the moon. And we, in my house, we walk out into the front yard quite often at night, whether it's a harvest moon, a blue moon, a half moon, a crescent moon, whatever. And we just look. My wife, Kelly, particularly for some reason, loves the moon. She's a total moony. And the thing is, she, we just sit out there and look. And we often look at the stars and the moon and we think these are the same stars and moon that Abraham looked up at. And David and Yeshua and all of these things. And guess what? You can't look at the sun. There's never been a time because I don't get a chance to see a lot of sunsets where I say, Kelly, did you see that full sun today? Wow. But there's plenty of moment 
when it is a beautiful moon that we take in. The moon causes tides. It creates a rhythm that has guided humanity for thousands of years, if you look at a biblical definition of age. The night sky is guided exploration of the planet. The sun measures our year, but the moon is a part of our month. We just bless the upcoming month. In Judaism, we have a prayer called Kedush Levana, where we sanctify the new moon. Rosh Chodesh gets a special thing where we blow the shofar and celebrate a new month of life. And it's all tied into this diminished lesser luminary who gave up its position of greatness. And it is completely and totally approachable. You can never be burned by moonlight. Moon was the pursuit of excellence in the space program. We could go there. We could approach it. We could walk on it. And we did. And it was part of our development as people. The sun does its great things. The moon is connected and a part of our lives every day. Well, so is the sun, dum-dum. I know, but you get the point. The singular greatness of the moon has been diminished by the objection to sharing it with the sun. And that's pretty great. It's pretty great. It's a great luminary. And listen, if we let the Midrash guide us here, that, that all of this greatness of the moon was made possible through the eventual, though not at first, humility of the moon to share greatness, to be subordinate, to not be the greatest, to not be the goat, and in a unique way to become closer to God. There's a lesson to borrow something, I think, from Stephen Covey. I can't even remember where it comes from. If we want all the joys of outward success, first we must master ourselves. We must redefine greatness in terms not of singularity, but of commonality and community. That's where greatness actually lies. Now, I wanna, I'm going to move quickly because this is actually two weeks of sermons, but I decided to just push it into one. So I'm going to rapid fire on you. Is that good? Or if you all fall asleep at some point, I'll know we're going to carry it over next week. <laughs> That idea is actually the impetus behind creation itself. That idea of singularity versus communion is the idea behind which God created the world. And here's the deal. Before there was anything, there was God, right? And it wasn't God sitting on a throne somewhere with his elbows up saying, hmm, I'm bored. It was nothing but light. God is light. He is endless, endless light. In Judaism, in the, if you'll allow me to delve slightly into the mystical realms of Judaism, before anything was just God, there was nothing. It was called, it was, there was nothing, but there was everything, because God is indeed everything, and his name is Ein Sof, without end. There was absolutely nothing but God that was everything. And you know what he did? He didn't say he's bored. The word is tsimsum. Tsimsum. He diminished himself. What? The God of the universe can never be diminished. Yes, he did. Do you know what he did? 
in that space, in this massive space of light, God removed a part of himself, made a little space that was now darkness. It was darkness. Why was it dark? Because God had removed himself from that space. It had become a space where creation could take place. But he was, in a sense, made smaller. He removed a part of himself. He pulled himself back. Now, why did he do that? Because the light of God was so incredibly, amazingly, awesomely powerful, there was no way we could contain that light. And according to the mystics, this is what happened next. Well, a better question is, why in the world did he do that? Because God desired that we would be with him. That there would be a world in which he would be the father, they would be the sons and daughters. And he created a space for that to happen in. And what happened next is the amazing thing. The kav, the ray, the laser, if you will, into the space, God's light in the form of one singular beam, if you can envision that. And that beam is God's word, which was spoken into the darkness. How was the world created? Well, it's pretty easy. And God said. What do you do when you say? You speak. And what do you use when you speak? Words. Let me just stick by my notes so that we can get through this. Sorry. I get excited about this. I really love it. It's kind of complicated, but listen. Listen to this. He contracted a space, removed the light, made a place where it was nothing but darkness. And you know what it was in there? Formless and void. Does that sound familiar to you? If we say it in Hebrew, it would be tohu vavohu. And that's in the Bible. The earth was astonishingly empty. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Tovu vavohu. It's an expression of astonishment at the desolation. That a person wonders at how something could be so empty. That's what was there when God removed his light. An absolute astonishing emptiness. And into that void God spoke. The laser and his word brought in a bit of light and began to do what? To create to make something in the void. And what was he making? A place for you and me. Why? Because God didn't want to just be the greatest and be alone. He had to diminish himself that we might have space to participate. Now that whole ray of light thing might sound super weird to you, but it ought to sound pretty familiar to you, actually. That ray of light of God's word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. Do you get what that's saying? That light, that word, that ray, that was indeed God creating through the spirit of Messiah just as John says. 
And it goes on to say, all things came into being through him and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overpower it. It's complicated, but man, is that cool. But that's not the point. We could talk about Simpson all day. What I'm talking about is the fact that even the creator of the universe, who is great beyond all great, El Elyon, the highest of highs, the greatest God, diminished himself that you might be, that you might exist, that there might be a place for you. The point is that even God can redefine his own greatness from singularity, the greatest to connection and community. There's more. Adam, the greatest of all God's creations, right? Singularly spectacular. Singularly spectacular. Ruling over all things, dominion, the power to name all things. And yet, in all of that greatness, what was Adam? Alone. He was alone. He was superior to all things created. As a matter of fact, God gave him the opportunity to name all things. And he did that. And this is what happened when that happened in Genesis 2.20. Man named all the cattle and the fowl of the heavens and all the beasts of the field. But for one, for, for a man, he did not find a helpmate opposite him. It's interesting to note in the narrative of Eve's formation... Of course, God knows. What does God say about that idea? It's not good. Lo tov. It is not good for man to be alone. But the important thing is, Adam had to realize that. God knew from the beginning that he was going to create male and female. That's not a mystery. In Genesis 1, it says he created them, male and female. But we're in Genesis 2. And Adam's sitting there naming all the animals, and he realizes... I'm alone. God. So, so here's the narrative. Here's the dialogue. You ready? I made it up. I'll just tell you that. I do that a lot. I think about the Bible that way, about what the conversations would have looked like. I think often about Abraham and Isaac's conversation. I think about Joseph and Pharaoh and, and, and Yeshua and Peter. And I, th I come up with these conversations. You know why? Because they make it real and they make it like life. Here's the conversation. Hey, God, Adam says, Father, I love you. And I am, man, I am really thankful for this whole world and garden thing. Like, I am digging this king of the jungle gig. <laughs> really loving it. And, I mean, really, dominion over all? That's pretty great. That's pretty great. And, and, well, I know, I know, I know. You're God and King, and, and I wrote some songs about that. But this is really, really cool. Really cool. But, but I do need to say, greatness is great. I mean, I'm like the goat here, God. And not that one that I just named. <laughs> Top of the food chain, I dig it, but it seems like it could get lonely. You know, I see all these cute and wonderful creatures, but I'm like, a, I'm a two-legged kind of girl guy. You know, I, I, there's just no one for me. 
So what can you do? To which Hashem responds, Adam, you're asking the wrong question. What can we do? That's the right one. I will do the hard work for you. You won't even know I did it. I'll put you to sleep. First anesthesia ever created. You're gonna, it'll be easy for you. But here's what I need you to know. I'll do the hard work, but you must become less. You must diminish yourself. You must give of yourself that someone else can have life. And here's the deal. I'm not, not asking a lot. But when I take greatness from you, I'm going to make her. And she's going to be equally great. And in many cases, greater. <laughs> to quote it beautifully in the words of a commentary I read from Aviva Zornberg, he must, in some sense, diminish himself, come to know the rightness of a more complex unity. He was the greatest, the only, singularly, powerfully, wonderful, and awesome. Adam, we are God's favorite creation. But Adam had to give up something. He had to diminish himself, just like the moon. And his greatness is connected to, formed in God's image, and in this flesh of his flesh called woman. The only way, actually, to truly be great is to give of yourself to other people. And I've decided I will continue this next week. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.